are listening to the Jersey Guys Podcast, the show that talks about hard rock, heavy metal, AOR, and West Coast music. In-depth conversation and special guests are always on tap, so settle in and turn it up. Now, here are your hosts, Tom and Mark. Hey everybody, welcome to the Jersey Guys Podcast. This is Mark Ballow and I'm here with my co-host Tom Coyne. Today we've got special guest Mark Mangold, who you may know from the band Touch in the 80s and also the band Drive She Said, amongst other things. And so we're going to talk with Mark today and uh, hope you guys enjoy this one. So let's get right to it. So uh, welcome, Mark. How are you? I'm good. Uh, Thanks for uh, doing this interview. Oh, thank you. Thanks for joining us. I guess I'll start with a little bit. Let's uh, start with the uh, the band Touch. Now, I know that's a band that kind of morphed uh, from the band American Tears. And tell us a little bit about how Touch formed and, you know, around that time period and, and you know, everything about Touch. Well, again, it morphed out of um, the last American Tears record when we decided to add a guitarist to the band, Craig Brooks. And uh, rather than doing another... American Tears record, we thought we'd change the name. The sound was so different that uh, we came up with the name Touch. We're doing, just, I think, maybe even more accessible songs with guitars and tons of harmonies as opposed to my crusade to uh, have a keyboard trio and I'll do everything on keys, which I still, I'm still on that crusade to an extent. Uh, with some of the things I do. But at that time, uh, we then signed with Bruce Payne, who handles Rainbow, and uh, Bruce got us a deal like within two weeks or something, (laughs) signing with him. (laughs) And then it was up to the races. Yeah, I mean, the clout that he brought to it, and I think people actually listened to us finally because we were involved with the right people. So we signed to ATCO, and we proceeded to uh, to do that record. Well, talk a little bit about, you mentioned a minute ago, Rainbow. Um, you guys famously played the the first Monsters of Rock show in Donington, England. And um, you guys actually were the first band on the bill that day. So technically, you were the first band to ever play on the Donington stage at Monsters of Rock. How did that whole thing come about? You know, I found that out about 10 years ago, uh, that we were the first band to play Monsters of Rock. It kind of blew my mind. Well, Rainbow was touring, and uh, Bruce put us on that tour, and we had a wonderful time uh, touring around Europe with Rainbow, playing some amazing venues, and uh, it culminated, actually, we might have had a gig after Donington, or two after Donington as well, but it kind of led up to Donington. And yet we were the first band on stage. It was uh, an amazing day. 60,000 people or something like that there. A bit rainy. Everyone's walking around in boots. But it just was an iconic moment with, you know, other bands on the bill. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you you had uh, had Riot and um, Judas Priest and Saxon and, you know, of course, Rainbow, April Wine, some great bands on that bill. They're still around. I mean, they're still, you know, freaking huge. They were kind of big then, but of course, they're, you know, icons at this point. Yeah, sure. So it's amazing how everybody stayed around. Fortunately, with us, you know, it just became such mayhem as the day and setting up. And But we fortunately had the mics set up properly for us. I mean, the bass drum mic was on the bass drum and guitar was on the guitar. I think, you know, as things start to get crazy, they just were throwing stuff on the stage. And the poor sound guy probably had to guess what the hell was where. (laughs) But, um, you know, we had a we weren't as loud as we wanted to be. They generally kind of tuck you know the opening bands a bit they don't want you to be as loud as you know the headliners so i think we could have probably blasted a little more but we i think had a good show we were very well rehearsed i would say so we just went up and did our thing had you guys um, been playing uh playing prior to that before i going over had you toured in, in round america it's seven or eight 
gigs with Rainbow before that. So we, we were we were tight even when we started the tour, but we could probably do it in our sleep at that point. Now, the first, the, the big single, of course, from Touch is, is Don't You Know What Love Is. That's a song, obviously, you wrote. Um, talk a little bit about that song and, and the success it, it, it had for you guys at that time. Yeah. Sometimes the last song you write for a record is the one because you kind of look at the record and you kind of go, first you go, what is missing? And then you kind of find the essence of the record in a way. And then you try to write, or I do, as it turns out, not necessarily even intentionally, it just seems to happen. You kind of grab the essence of the record and you just put it in three and a half minutes. And that's kind of what, don't you know what love is, came out, you know, came out of. I, I thought When the Spirit Movies was going to be the, the single, you know, because it was, um, you know, more melodic, maybe a little more poppy or commercial. But the record company came out, you know, wanted to go with Don't You Know Love Is, and they were certainly right. And that really uh, slammed. I think it was number one in a couple, you know, territories in the U.S. and certainly got some um, some movement in, in Europe and uh, did very well for us. So Yeah. Now that was... Um... You said that you mentioned uh, When the Spirit Moves You. That, that was also a single, though, right? It was a single. Yeah, okay. I, I think that was a follow-up single. Yeah. Okay. Now you mentioned that a second ago about kind of you know when you talk about uh, don't you know what love is? You said that it's kind of like the last thing. Was that the last song you wrote for the album? Yeah, it was, and it ended up being the uh, the first track on the album, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like we knew we were having so much fun doing these vocals, piling of vocals and um, tapestries. And then guitar solos followed by kind of symphonic keyboard extravaganzas. And that became a bit of a signature of the band. And uh, yeah, I really dig doing that. Yeah. I, I do that a lot now. <laughs> um, scathe and then just go into, you know, make a right turn into some, oh my God, symphonic direction. <laughs> we did. We did that a bunch of times on the new on the new record, you know, that came out last year. Yeah, we're um, gonna talk about that in a second. Yeah, um, cool. I wanted to ask you one thing though, if I could. This is kind of a personal thing because my my personal favorite song on the on the debut touch is "So High." What can you tell me about that song? I love that song. I mean, well, you talked about I a keyboard that. extravaganza a second ago. Let's go there with that. Yeah, it's weird, you know, because I don't really even. I barely see myself as a singer. You know, I've just worked with so many amazing singers. Uh, but I sang that song. So it's always um, gratifying to hear that, you know, people dig it. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's those synths, man. That synth line and those modulations. And yeah, it's a cool song. So let, let's go to the, uh, you mentioned a second ago that there is a new Touch album. Um, let's talk about that. Uh, 2021 tomorrow never comes right how did that all come about well we've been you know playing with the idea uh and finally i got the guys together a couple of years ago I, just, I sent them a song and it was like if you don't want to do a record can we just let's do a single let's show people we're still alive hmm. and then i sent them a Tomorrow Never Comes. And then I sent the four more songs and said, oh, yeah, let's do all these. <laughs> and then Craig wrote some, wrote you know a couple, and then Doug wrote a couple, and I wrote a couple more. And by the end of it, we did, the train just kept rolling, and we, we had um, 13, 12, 13 songs or something. Yeah. And we just enjoyed the process so much again. It was like, um, it was like we never stopped in a way. And Fortunately, everybody's still singing their ass off. Craig has not lost his voice like, you know, so many other singers. Partially because he hasn't been singing for 40 years. He's been <laughs> doing other stuff. So he really has preserved his voice and his range has probably increased from what it used to be. Yeah. And another thing that was cool was we kind of knew what we do. We really had a sense of what we were more than like when we first did it, we were experimenting, you know, I don't know, which is a good, it's kind of a bad thing about what's happening now is everything's become so generic and there are all these new bands 
are have heard all that stuff and many times are just regurgitating it. Yeah. But in the early days when we were first coming up with all those bands, whether it be Purple or Foreigner or Touch, you know, or Sticks or you know, Kansas, they're all looking for a new sound to define themselves. And um, that's what we were doing with the Touch stuff. Uh, it wasn't, we weren't looking around and saying, who can we copy? Or, you know, this is going to be the thousandth Whitesnake song that sounds like Is It Love? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Or, or whatever. So um, we were kind of threading the needle on Tomorrow Never Comes because we knew that we had to somehow be in that world that we had created, but we didn't want to just be another ripoff of, you know, doing that record again. We wanted to be somewhat modern, somewhat current, take it to the next level, really. Oh yeah. I mean, uh, it's 40 years from on from the debut. So you have to kind of, you know, you're, you're a different person, you're a different songwriter now. So it's gotta be that way. You think, but you know, there are people that, you know, Oh, it's too different or it's too modern or it's too this or it's too that. It, it's almost harder to do it 40 years later than it is to do it when you're first doing it. Yeah. it, it you can kind of follow your instincts, but then you have to, now you're thinking, close to this is just too far away is you know the song one of our favorite songs on the record is try to let go which is you know it's kind of almost goth or something like that mm. uh, it's not old touch um and it's just getting great response now it's probably more modern than some of the other stuff but that was a song where you know once you start second guessing yourself would they dig it or is it with this or is it that that's when you kind of get fucked up. So you just kind of, you got to have fun. You have to go with your instincts and you just got to, but by the end of it, I would say we decided that whatever we do is touch. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's what it is. We can't second guess it. Is this too much? This is this too much that it's like, that's what we're doing. And it's what we do. And I think just the fact that the four of us are playing it and singing it is what defines it. That was our hope. And, I mean, Craig wrote Scream at the Sky, which is at first blush, not very touched. But it's almost like Pink Floyd. But once we did it, it became us in a way. Another thing that we just, we're just going to do it the best we can. I mean, you know, Doug's song, Trippin' Over Shadows, is kind of a mid-range, um, singly almost. We just did it as best we could, you know, with tons of harmonies. And we just kind of brought our A-game, we try to bring our A-game to it. So no matter what it was, we just did our best. Out of respect for whoever wrote it, out of respect for each other. Really. Yeah. Well, let me let me ask you, because you mentioned a couple songs that I was actually going to bring up. Um, the song Try to, Le uh, Try to Let Go, uh, Fire yeah. and Ice, uh, Tripping Over Shadows, and Frozen Ground. I think right in the middle of the album there, I think the album like really hit its stride. And those four songs in a row, I, I love those songs. Is You know, I know... I think Frozen Ground was a song that you wrote and you mentioned, you know, everybody yeah. else kind of contributed. And I know the other songs that guys, other guys in the band wrote. Um, can you tell us a little bit about some of those songs? Yeah. Well, you know, Craig came up with Fire and Ice. He, he's, he's really great at coming up with rock stuff and riffs and stuff. And then it was almost a little AC-DC-ish in a way, you know, something like that. Yeah. But then we did it and we brought ourselves to and we, you know, brought our harmonies to the chorus. Um, you know, I, pretty much arranged and produced it. And as I did with, I mean, tripping over shadows, Doug, Doug played it on piano and uh, it's a piano voice song. It's like, <laughs> Doug, no man, it's not, it's, you know, let's put some drums on it or something. And, and we built it up and turned it in, into, into what it was, but we slowly, uh, you know, arranged it, but as it evolved, they just became us. Yeah. And we just, just put forward on it. Yeah. Now, before we kind of kind of go on to some other stuff, I, I did want to ask you about the the new Touch album, Tomorrow Never Comes, did come out in America on uh, Deco Entertainment, right? Right. Uh, Tom and I actually did a uh, an interview uh, on our podcast a couple months back with uh, Charlie Kalf, um, and you know, Charlie. of course, <laughs> he's a guy's an old friend of mine. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I know, you know, how was uh, dealing with Deco, and how did that all come about? Deco's amazing. Charlie's, you know, Charlie played on, um, oh no, he, yeah, he played on a couple of American Tears things. Mm -hmm. And he actually, I have another band coming out in a month called Keys, which is a keyboard oriented 
band with a great Swedish singer from the band Syrah. I don't know if you've ever heard of Syrah, Jake E. Okay. No. So Charlie played some songs, some keyboards on, on that. I try to include him. Whatever I'm doing, any keyboard stuff, I always ask if he wants to make a cameo appearance. You know, he played on some American Tears stuff. So, yeah, Charlie's great. We were on um, Escape an American for two American Tears records. And Escape was distributed by Deco. And I met Charlie and I said, hell, let's just, um, let's just go in the U.S. with Deco. And, uh, of course, touches on Escape in Europe because Escape's very strong in Europe. Uh, but maybe not as strong in, in the U.S. Uh, because they're a European label. So then we just decided Charlie wanted it, and we, and we went in that direction. So they're wonderful to work with, very nice people. I've never seen him lose his temper. He's always got a calm and respect. And, you know, he besides being a musician, he's, he's a great musician. But also yeah. he really, um, I think, not only us, but has respect for the bands that he signed and gives them their space and does the best he can to promote. So. Yeah, great. That, that's cool. Yeah. So uh, I know Tom uh, wanted to ask you a little about and go on to uh, the Drive She Said stuff. So let's kind of go in that direction now. Before sure, we get to, to Drive She Said, I wanted to ask you one question I probably have always wanted to ask you. I think with all the years that have passed, you're kind of regarded as one of the godfathers of AOR, which has become a term that's you know very broad-based, overused. And, and I would like to ask you, back in the day, did you get your ideas from bands like Journey, Foreigner, or Boston, or was it more something like you did on your... Because I've always looked at AOR as really not being necessarily out of those bands while most people think they are. I, I look at Touch, Shooting Star, Early Asia, uh, GTR. I, to me, that was the beginnings of AOR. So where did you get that sound from that has carried on for so many years? Well, it wasn't from those bands. I mean, as I was saying earlier, we were, in all those bands, we're trying to find a signature sound. I'm not even sure the commonality between a journey and a Boston and a and a foreigner. Or, you know, it's... Right. I never did either. Or, That's why or, I didn't. Or, right. Or Sticks or Kansas. Everybody was just trying to, you know, do their thing. And we had certain instruments that we could do it with. Early stages, I mean, we were dealing with an ARP odyssey which is a monophonic instrument a mini mug which is a monophonic instrument when the arp strings came out gary wright had a huge hit with dreamweaver i mean that instrument hadn't been invented <laughs> so we were especially keyboards were very at the mercy of what of technology and what was being invented of course the hammond organ was there and that gave you know a lot of bands were, were doing that but every new thing that was invented we you know as jump on it and uh and try to use it and you know that would kind of become our sound so um but it really was more of looking within looking inside expressing your personal taste i'm always trying to go for beauty in a way you know i'm looking for something that's beautiful mm -hmm. either nasty or you know kick-ass some kick-ass guitar riff but also with all the harmonies and the keyboard tapestries I just want to make the, the hairs on your arm go up or mine maybe it's selfish but if i'm getting my adrenaline going you know and can listen to it right five I, years i, I, I totally years, get that i mean that's really the goal is, is to get the hairs to stand up I, you know we were in that world of that instrumentation but i i wasn't at all you know in fact kind of it's, it's funny we used to rehearse in a loft in new york i don't know if you ever noticed the similarity between last chance for love and feels like the first time, but you know we actually were, we would rehearse, and our roadie was foreigners' roadie. Ah, <laughs> really? Okay. I always was like, hey man, that sounds like less sense for love. So you know, who knows? You know where stuff was coming from, or what you stumble over. But um, we were really, especially when we were in the studio, we were just searching for our own thing. And and who knew you would have became the godfather of AOR? Well, you say so. I say so. Oh, it's got to be the fucking Godfather. That's right. Know. That's right. <laughs> I say so. So I, what I wanted to ask you now is how, how did you hook up with one of my favorite musicians and singers of all time, Al Frisch? How did that partnership come about? Wow, Al. Yeah. I just got to chill. Well, after, after Touch, uh, we, it was clear we weren't going to continue the Touch uh, 
and I, you know, it's weird. All these years later, you know, I look at bands like Rainbow, who had 20 lead singers, and all these other bands that just, you know, have musical chairs in terms of the musicians. But Craig, you know, didn't want to do it, wasn't going to do it anymore. He was kind of changing his life. And Bruce was like, oh, you know, get on, get on a singer. Let's continue. We can keep going. It's like, it didn't even occur to me that that was even a remote possibility. First of all, I could probably never, you know, find somebody like Craig. But, you know, that was touch. Touch is kind of over. Unless we get back together and could do another record. It was, um, I don't know if that was a mistake or it's just, anyway, it was what happened. So I kind of went back to the drawing board and, um, I was working with, um, I don't know if you know, Fran Cosmo. From Boston, uh, sure. Yeah, yeah, this was before Boston. We were working uh, for probably six to eight months on some stuff. And then um, it wasn't quite working out in terms of the songwriting with Fran, though we're very, very good friends. Uh, and then I found Al. I, I think I put an ad in somewhere. And Al shows up with a couple of his great Long Island friends who've become like brothers as well and it was like holy shit <laughs> you know there was the voice so rather than forming a, a band and dealing with all those assholes and bullshit and your drummer's gonna quit and your bass players you know on the rag or whatever oh excuse me I should, I guess <laughs> no, it's anything goes here yeah no we're fine yeah so al and i just kind of decided to be a duo i mean we had a band that we stayed with for for years and we toured with but the essence of the band you know, I guess like a rock version of Hall and Oates or Tears of Fears or whatever it may be. We just kind of kept it as a duo so we could musically make the decisions. Because, I mean, our taste was so similar. I mean, we, we never had a bad word. All the years I knew him, there was never a bad word with Al. We just were on the same page. We're great friends. There was never a disagreement. Some people have said, oh, you need tension to make music. Say, fuck you. No, <laughs> we were fine. So, um yeah, that's how I met Al. He came up to my apartment where I also had a little recording studio on 72nd Street. And then we started building it and we started doing demos. And uh, some of our earlier demos were a bit more electronic. We started really getting into the rock stuff and we signed with a manager named John Luongo, who was a, one of the bigger mixers at the time. And John brought us up to uh, CBS and CBS, by the grace of God, signed us. And uh, we got we got to do our records. Where did the name Drive She Said come from? Um, yeah, we were going to call the band Drive. And then my friend, I have a friend named Mark Kahanis, unfortunately passed away, a major video videographer. I mean, he did, you know, the early Bon Jovi stuff. He just did many, many rock videos. Scandal, ton of country stuff. I think he might have even done a restriction thing, whatever. Um, and he said, no, it's boring. Let's go to Drive, she said. I said, okay, Martin, thanks. <laughs> I said, which I, I think was more picturesque, maybe conducive to uh, your imagination a little bit more. So we went with Drive, she said. Plus, there were a couple of bands out there in and around that time that were called Driver throughout the uh, the state. So I'm yeah, sure. I think after that there became a there was a band called Drive, but I think gave them to the punch. But anyway, you know, then we launched into having steering wheels on every. <laughs> became the signature uh, look <laughs> so when you met yeah. al frisch did you know at that time that you had a diamond in the rough yeah and and i i think he, i think he did too you know i mean and he wasn't so rough by the way <laughs> uh but I, I i get your expression yeah and in terms I, of like nobody knew who he was not not the with, not his with him, he played every instrument and we just were on the same page musically and and he Sometimes I would start a song and I just wouldn't finish it knowing that he knew exactly where to go with it. It's like, okay, what would you do here? And he just, okay, that's it. It was such a pleasure to work with him. And a phenomenal musician, phenomenal voice. Oh, yeah, his voice I mean, was just, and a great, great guitar player, too. I was, I remember the first time I saw videos of him playing lead guitar, I had no idea he could play like that. I knew how he could sing. I didn't know he was that type of guitar player. I mean, he's a better keyboard player than me. Um, by far, he's like Rachmaninoff or something. No, nah, like he was the guy was just such a super talent, a huge favorite of mine. 
Now, this album sure. kind of puts you guys, I remember when it came out, I, I bought it when it came out, it, 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 it had some immediacy to it in terms of everybody that I knew at the time that was into the whole, you know, AOR melodic rock movement glommed onto this record, you know, just from its inception. Did you guys know that? I mean, did you, did you anticipate that being on CBS or was it kind of a shock? We wanted to get the record out. So CBS is a great label. I had been on there on you know Columbia for years with American Tears. So it was pretty amazing that I was back on CBS. That was like really unbelievable. But you know, I don't know. As a musician, you're a beggar, you know, you're you're begging people to like your shit. Right. You know, you go with your hat in your hand, especially in those days when you had to get some executive at some major company to like you. It wasn't like now there was no, uh, you know, Spotify or anything like that. So you, you could be a great band and you could not get signed. And that happened to many, many bands, as you know, or getting signed, you know, getting turned down by 11 companies and getting lucky. And then the public responding and then the record company taking the credits for it. Oh, we knew. No, you didn't, you asshole. <laughs> uh, so, so we got lucky and, and we got signed and we got it out. Right after that, grunge came. As you remember, you know, Nirvana came out and Pearl Jam and all that stuff. And the music industry changed. And uh, we ran over to Europe and got signed in Europe. But this melod- the melodic rock was really kind of dead for many, many years in the States. It was a, a brutal transition for many bands. So you we moved on to of, Music from Nations uh, on the second yeah. album, Driving Wheel. Yeah. We toured We toured Europe like every nook and cranny of, of Europe, especially the UK. We toured with you know, clubs, and it was so much fun. We were actually before, a day before or a day after Pearl Jam, or Guar, by the way. So that was a <laughs> lot of fun. You'd show up at a club that you'd you know fake blood all over the place, <laughs> or or who the fuck is this band Pearl Jam? Um, so yeah, and then of course they completely changed and Nirvana and you know some type of pilot and blah blah blah. Soundgarden they really just changed everything, and a lot of bands just like you know like I said had to kind of figure out how to reinvent themselves or find a way to survive. Well, this album did do well at the time. I remember I was writing for a magazine called Boulevard at the time, and it got a big buzz in terms of the circle of people that were still fans of this music. I'm not going to – right, it wasn't a worldwide phenomenon, but the people that – And in Europe, it was like number one. You know, I mean, there was a – I don't know if you knew Keld Hellraiser. I knew him very well, yeah. Mark knows him as well, yeah. Keld. So Kel was one of the moving people at Shay's record shop, which was really a center for melodic rock. Towards getting drive, she said, we were on number one on a couple of charts out there. And it really took off in Europe, which really facilitated the Music for Nations thing. Um, that was the first record. So then Music for Nations allowed us to do more records. But yeah, it really was, Europe was was the place that we were surviving at. So it wasn't, it wasn't so much in the States, really. And unfortunately for, for you guys, with the timing of everything, you were growing as a band. Like it, that, that first record, while it was on CBS, and, and I liked it a lot, I, I liked the second one a lot more. I, I saw the difference um, in the band just from one, one album to another. Even though it was on a smaller label, I, I definitely thought it was even better than the first one. Thank uh, you. That's because we were, we were touring. And we were touring with UFO, by the way, you know, or FM or some, you know, heavier bands. So we needed to kick some ass. So we needed some songs like Driving Real and, you know, some of the heavier things that would, you know, allow us to survive a bit more in a, in a right. rock life. I mean, you can't be playing for UFO and do When the Spirit Moves You. Right. Or, you know, Love Is No Pride was, was one of our big singles. So we actually, when we did Love Is No Pride, for instance, we, I just played piano. And sat with Al on the side of the stage and he sang it. So we turned into a piano voice song. Because you couldn't, you didn't want to get away with a whole poppy, you know, number when you have people spitting blood, you know. For <laughs> right. It. No, but, I get it. Yeah. So th- that. It was a heavier that, record than the first one overall, it, not in its entirety, but. No, not its entirety. In my, in my yeah. opinion, the, the best song on the album was Veil of Tears. That was my favorite song. That and was, that's probably the most. 
you know, Pearl Jammy song there is that, you know, on the record in a way. Right. You know, that that was I, I would say grunge, not Pearl Jam. But you know, that was, you know, heavy and, and dark and um yeah, I loved Daily Tears. It was a terrific record. It was it, it was in my opinion, it was a jump up from the first one, which was very, you know, AOR from beginning to end. Driving yeah. Wheel was had hard rock. It had some dark stuff. It had some typical AOR. It, it was more diverse. It, it, it was a band, and in my opinion, that was growing. Well, thank you. And then we move to the next one, which is Accelerator. That was very eclectic. I, I'm on, at this moment, I'm forgetting what songs were on the record, if there was on Driving Wheel or but yeah, what I, I wanted to hit you with on this album, and hopefully you can re- remember it to to see if I'm out of my mind or or I'm spot on. This album always reminded me, in spots, not the whole record, of the first Bruce Hornsby. Yeah, am I on yeah. am I on point with that? And there was some, you know, almost uh, Bruce Springsteen, you know, a lot of lyrical, almost Bob Dylan-y, long piano things. Right. Yeah, right. Hornsby was quite big at the time, and um, Mark Cohen, yeah. So we did some piano stuff. We rocked out too, but yeah, it was definitely an eclectic record. That was, I think, I don't know. We just, we just wanted to do that and kind of spread out and do some different kind of stuff. So we did. And you, you really, you know, put forth uh, Al's vocals on this album. I, I think that it's at this point, everybody really knew what a great singer this guy was. For sure. And, you know, something at last, there are some political songs, 42nd Street, Mm -hmm. very lyrical, very lyrical songs. So then we move on to real life. What could you tell us about that? Because that's uh, your first album now on Frontiers Records. Well, real life just came out on Escape again about two years ago. I was not happy with real life the way it turned out on on, uh, Frontiers. And we remixed the whole thing. And uh, Khalil at and Escape re-released it. It just sounds so much better than that. It might be my favorite Josh Sand record. Actually. I didn't know Khalil re-released this album. Yes. Unfortunately, that's the way it goes over there. But it is, I mean, I get chills when I listen to this version of it. Because it's more, it's a little bit closer to the first record, but it's anthemic choruses, skating, guitar solos, really cool musicianship, a lot of symphonic stuff. We did a song called, I think Overdrive was on that song. Yeah, it is. Yeah, a- another kind of driving wheel. We do one of those for every record. We just like to kick ass. So what did Khalil um, do with He remixed it. Was, it was remixed? I-, I remixed it with, I think it was named Brian. He's from New Jersey. And it's like night and day now. Um, I'm really proud of that record. Yeah. I got. I have to hunt that out. I never knew that. I mean, I know Khalil from the early '90s. I went to England in the late '90s and visited him, and we still keep yeah. in contact. But I, I, it's for some reason, I, it got past me that he re-released this. I, I did not know that. The choruses on 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 this record, they're just so freaking huge, and the voices and loaded up tons of harmonies. Um, yeah, I really did. I really dig because I didn't like the original production on this on Frontiers. It was terrible. You know, that, that's, you know, we were very disappointed. It had no bottom end to it. It was, it was very, like, a very high-end, tinny production. It was, yeah. It, was, it wasn't right. And that was something, you know, I don't want, I don't want to badmouth anybody. But no, no, I mean, I'm just talking, I'm talking as a fan. You don't, have, you, you, don't, you don't have to agree with me. Check out, you know, the, the Escape version. I can, I can get that to you. Um, I'll even send you MP3s if you want to hear it. Um, yeah, the new, all new artwork remixed the entire thing. Interesting, because so. this was the least favorite of the Drive She Said albums to me. I, it didn't resonate with me, and I never liked the production on it. And I'm wondering, you know, if well, if, if I heard it, it's it. one, probably one of my favorites or my favorite. Mm. Drive she said. So check it out. Well, we're going to move to my favorite, which unfortunately was the last album, Pedal to the Metal. It was my favorite album by the band. Uh, it had a heaviness. Uh, it had just inc- so- songs that the first time I heard this this CD when I bought it, like the first six seven songs out of the out of the box, I absolutely loved. I, on, on first listen, how did this come yeah. about years after the fact, and how did you come up with so many great songs at, at this point in time? Yeah, by that time, Al and I knew really what we were doing, and you know what what this band was. Hell to the metal was actually. One of the songs that 
it didn't end up on driving wheel or whatever was around that time but we wrote it for that that was our set opener when we were touring it was only about two minutes it was just an intro pedal to the metal and we morphed into the second song so we finished it and then we recorded it as it should have been recorded yeah i, I love um in our blood in our blood is about it's the best song on the album and it's got oh, there's so God. many great songs on the album but that's my favorite I love, yeah and we knew how to do them you know and we just picked the best of the best of, of that we did or that we were coming up with and we put it on the record and i went over to well the thing about these records is is they're done you know in your living room and right. then you have to send whoever for no, guitar we're doing uh so it, it's 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 very difficult to kind of to kind of do it and make it happen but we did and we had i had met some great swedish musicians who played drums perfectly you know we they start off with midi you know you kind of write your own drum tech and then you ask somebody to play it um you know pretty damn close to the program and they you know do it and make it better with live drums so peter erkin is one of the drummers and pontus engborg who actually was in the uh, touch tribute thing at uh at firefest they play drums on it and Tommy Denander made a guest appearance and blah, blah, blah. So, um, and I, I went to Europe to mix it with um, a person that Frontier set me up with and I, we mixed it together. Um, it probably could have been mixed a little bit better, but um, it is what it is. It, it's it's cool. Um, I think we got the point across. It, it definitely yeah. did. It had a, it, it, I, I like the fact that it had hard rock elements through the whole album and once yeah. i once once i connect with musicians i like to being going down different roads and that would you know you guys have done that from the the aor to rock and even yeah. on this album it was real punchy hard rock on on the some of the best songs with with a big hard rock production and when you yeah, have a single like frish a lot of harmonies and, and yet we like to be eclectic you know right. i mean Alan, we're not always trying to you know push the envelope and we're never, it was like, we do what the fuck we want to do. That's what he used No, that's what say. I liked about the band, always. You know, yeah. if you got you know, the talent, I like going down different roads. I don't like hearing six records of the same exact thing. And you guys yeah. have been, pre were pretty diversified throughout the whole Drive She Said period. I, I thought. Yeah, we really wanted to be eclectic, which is another nice thing about being a duo as well. Um, you can kind of, in a way, get away with that a little bit easier as well rather than being a band and having to deal with the same inputted musicians all the time right and very often al would play almost everything on his like he played bass uh and guitar i would generally do the keyboards but if he could do it better he, he would do the keyboards too so you know it's every man you know it's like everybody had input i mean unfortunately al passed not not too long after this album and um how did you find yourself um, going forward without um, him in, in in your whole coexistence of being a musician? Well, I miss Al every fucking day. I can I imagine. Mean, I mean, you know, right now, every day, I just want to talk to him. I want, you know, I want to play him a song. What do you think of this? What should, what should we do here? Sometimes I try to almost channel him. It's like mm -hmm. at 54, you know, to die of a heart attack is just ripped from ripped from us all you know god knows what he would have done musically and as a person you know that's a whole other thing it's an amazing thing he wasn't all that i did in music i mean um so you know i did other things i was in various other bands i was in sweden for a year and a half doing other you know doing pop music i um so it didn't it didn't necessarily stop me in my tracks and being creative though i miss being creative with him you know in, in that kind of way i found i guess you know things to do um actually had a couple of hits in in asia with some pop stuff k-pop if you can believe it and uh i don't talk about that much and then uh just picked myself up and we did a three american tears records i just wanted to play i wanted to you know express so we did i did hardcore uh white flags and then followed by uh angels hello <laughs> free angel free express, express. <laughs> yeah so i really got a chance to to revisit the 70s and 80s and just play 
just play keyboards and be creative and eight minute songs and no sound, no structure. You don't have to go to chorus if you don't want to. You don't have to do a B section. Just what do you want to hear here? You're on a precipice and, you know, in a really purely creative sense, based on instinct and experience and whatever sounds are available in your, in the huge, um, whatever choice of sounds that you can choose from as a keyboard player now, from symphonic stuff to elephant screams, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I, I really immersed myself in that. It was a bit of COVID going on, so I was basically alone, um, well, with my wife in our apartment in Sweden, and I have my studio there. So I just was, without any hope of anybody liking it or wondering if they even wanted to hear it, I just, just was creative as hell and just did these records. So, yeah, I really immersed myself in that just to, just to keep going. And then after that, morphed into um, Touch. The guys came together and, um, and we uh, started working on Touch. Yeah, kind of came, uh, kind of came full circle there for uh, you know forty yeah, years you know, in between. Right? What's amazing is Al's microphone, a Neumann uh, one hundred three. His wife gave it back to me. Uh, Steph gave it back to me, and I sent it over to uh, Craig. So all, all the vocals on the touch stuff that Craig is singing are on Al's mic. Oh wow! So holy shit, you know. And I don't know if if you listen very carefully to um, try to let go you will hear Al's voice on the background. Oh, really? In that song. Nobody knows this except me who mixed it. But, but you know, you know now. Wow. And I guess watches the podcast with him. But he's <laughs> in there um, because, you know, we had, we had done that song as well. So I grabbed some of Al's vocals. So Al has made a, uh, an anonymous appearance. That's awesome. Um, yeah. Well, let's uh, let's talk about some of the other things. You know, obviously, you are an, a longtime songwriter. It's it's the craft that you have. I want to ask you about this actually before we touch on anything else. Let's go to the Michael Bolton uh, time that you had in your period of your life. You played on the first couple Michael Bolton albums. Yeah, and you also are a co-writer with him on the famous um, "I Found Someone." Right? Yes. Yeah, we wrote that about the same. Same time as all the other stuff was happening, and then that was well, originally you know, a, a Laura Branigan song, right? And then Cher, of course, you know, kind of made it a little more thank famous. God, thank God, Cher did it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, yeah, you know, you reminded me in that intro we have to touch. I was when I was working with Fran. I guess even be a bit before Fran or or during. Um, I got a call from a wonderful guy named Louis Levin, who's uh, managed Michael. Touch was really kind of at its high point, and Michael was just getting signed to CBS. And, uh, you know, Michael's from Connecticut, and Lewis uh, suggested we write together. So we got together, um, and we wrote Fool's Game. That was, like, the first song we wrote. Wow. That kind of, that kind of solidified his deal with Columbia. And another, the other thing that was amazing that was happening in New York, and you were around as well, the China Club. Ah, and yes. the, the hang at the China Club was amazing in new york city during those years everybody was there every thursday night nirvana would have there's a club called nirvana and they would have an open mic mm. michael was there you could see uh mick jagger there um david bowie would be there springsteen would be there. everybody everybody you'd see danger danger hanging out bon Jovi was hanging out that's why i met aldo nova at at china club and we started writing a lot um i hung out with michael there so you, you could meet somebody in this given evening and have a career for the next 10 years after yeah, that wow yeah those famous you know, i remember those famous jam sessions at the china club yeah you know who knows who would come up at the china club and uh, it was just across town for me and it just doesn't exist anymore it's so it's just such a shame that it doesn't exist maybe it exists online or or something but it was such a vibrant time in New York and so many bands were getting signed out of New York and so much was happening. And, you know, it was basically LA and New York. Some bands, some guys went to LA, like a guy working with now, James Christian, who's, you know, from House of Lords. He, we were actually talking about this the other day. He was like, man, you're from Connecticut. You weren't in the New York scene so much. He says, no, I went to LA. And that's, that's when House of Lords got signed. So, um, yeah, James chose to, go another route but it was it was a pretty amazing 
place. And uh, and then after the first uh, record with Fool's Game, I actually did some touring with Michael. And then we wrote uh, three songs on his next record, Everybody's Crazy, which are some of my favorite songs I've ever written. Can't Turn It Off to me is like, I don't think it ever gets better than that in terms of, I don't know, you know, I guess you can call it AOR, but, and we weren't trying to write AOR, we were just writing what we were writing. But the pain in that song, and at that moment in my life, I was going through some periods of of difficulty. But musically, that song uh, just has it all, so much emotion in that. And thank goodness, Neil Kernan, who produced it, and Michael really gave it the, the attention that, you know, I think it deserved, so... Well, let's let's jump around a little bit on some other things. I know Tom was asking about something, or we were talking about it earlier before we came on. Uh, the Mystic Healer release. What can you tell us about that? That, of course, you know, had a lot of. It came out in the late late nineties, but I, I'm assuming this was something that was uh, a lot older than that. And where did you find well, Todd yeah, Googings, and whatever happened to him? Yeah, you know Mario, um, and you know at at, at the label, and um, and Magnus. Asked me, asked me, do you have any old, older, you know, songs like that never got recorded? Any even Michael Bolton songs or whatever? I said, yeah, we got a lot of them. And Todd was a very good friend, a great singer. So we put together the Mystic Healer record, Healer record, which is basically a lot of those older songs. Water from a Stone, I wrote for Cher, which he never did, um, but I really thought she should have. It was mm. just, uh, you know, it was written for her. And um, Tony Norum, John's, John Norum from Europe's sister, right. a great singer, she did a song um, called If You Have a Fall, which was a hit in Europe. And um, so we did that. We did a whole, whole bunch more things. Actually, we did Tonight, which I, I wrote with Michael, which never ended up in any of, of, of Michael's records. So a lot of them were older songs that we just put in one place. And I think Todd did an amazing job of singing them. He was tremendous on that record. How come he hasn't ever shown up on any other records? At least he, he I don't, I don't know. He, you know, he's a, a great singer, and he was singing for a living for a while. But I guess no one just, either no one discovered him or no one asked him or something. I, yeah, it's a I, shame. I he was really good. I, I, I love that Mr. Keeler record, and I thought he really stood out uh, vocally on it. I thought it was tremendous. Yeah, huge range, huge power. Yeah, absolutely. It was. It was a lot of fun doing that, yeah. Yeah, that album was a big favorite of mine. Cool. Um, in fact, I owned the Japanese press that had the extra song All Your Love on it that wasn't on the European press. Oh, but, yeah, I love that song. That was a two. Yeah. I, I actually thought that Japanese bonus track was even better than some of the songs on the album. Yeah, um, I think I wrote that with Randy Jackson. Didn't I? Oh, Interesting. You know, if I remember, I could be wrong, but I, I'm pretty sure I wrote that with Randy. That, yeah, that's that's a great freaking chorus. Yeah, great song. Yeah, but come out in Japan, they require you to have a bonus track. So that's what it turned out to be. And it's got to be a good one. Yeah, so, yeah that's changed all now. And I don't know if, whether you're whether you're up on it, but nobody does it. You know what? They give they give Japanese labels uh, acoustic tracks, uh, alternative uh, mixes. They they don't give an actual studio bonus track anymore. It's very very rare. They give like these cheese ball uh you know acoustic versions and stuff like that now is japanese bonus tracks yeah. yeah we just you know um released some the the first two touch records in japan on a label called rubicon and they were ha- they were not having that they, you know they wanted something that was credible that would tell some so we found some we found some stuff i forget what we found but um so we, we've never we tried not to do throwaway stuff though it's tempting i guess but but you also got to put, you know, you want to be proud of what you're putting out there. You don't want to put bullshit out there. Exactly. Well, you, you mentioned a second ago the name Randy Jackson, uh, of course, of Zebra. We just did a podcast with Randy a few weeks ago, and we talked about it, and we're going to talk talk about it with you here, too. Uh, talk about the sign project. Oh, I love the sign. Yeah. It's, you know, um, funny, I just was listening to I'm Alive, a song on the first sign record. That's another record that we remastered a couple of years ago and which is out on escape um and it's night and day from the from the stuff that was out in frontiers uh, again i hate to say it, that's something that bothered me for years like before i die i gotta get that sign shit out there it's so good it's got to be redone properly and it's got to be remastered and and we did that 
we remixed the second one because the second one was very badly mixed by somebody that the label chose. In fact, they were leaving out guitar solos. They didn't use, I mean, it was just, it was a fiasco. I won't mention the name and the guy who did it. And we couldn't stop it. And, you know, we had a big fight with them. And we actually put out our version mixed by Randy, you know, kind of in comp- competition just to save face. Uh, but finally, I got Khalil again from Escape interested in it. And so let's just do this right. And we remastered it uh, and remixed. We remixed the second one and remastered it. And we just remastered the first one. And it just sounds so kick-ass and really the way it's supposed to sound uh, now. On, on the And it came out as a double CD um, on Escape. And I swear I'm not trying to sell this stuff. I just, in terms of putting music out there that you want to be proud of, yeah, that's, if you want to listen to the sign, that's the one you want to hear. Serafino did give us a lot of freedom. You know, the guy who runs Frontiers, he kind of, you know, said why don't you do a band with these guys and put this together and it was a super group and uh randy and terry came over to my house and we wrote these you know crazy songs and we wrote them very quickly we must have written the whole album in like two weeks at my place but then it took about a year and a half to record it because you know writing the shit's easy but making it you know recording it and finding a place to record within a a non-budget is very difficult and then recording, you know, 60 tracks of background vocals and, you know, these tapestries of, of sound was very time consuming. So it took us a, a while to do it. And Billy Greer was where he was. And Bobby Rondinelli, when we had to wait for him, you know, to get off tour to play the drums, uh, which was very, very challenging drum parts. So mm-hmm. we slowly put it all together um, in Randy's basement in Long Island, pretty much. And in my studio in New York. And then uh, we proceeded to mix it. And, uh, you know, thank God for Serafino for allowing it all to happen and being patient. Of, so that was, that was a good thing. I do thank him for that. The other record I wanted to talk to you about a little bit uh, was Flesh and Blood uh, with Al Petrelli and um, Danny Vaughn. If you could tell us a little bit about how that came I, about. I, well, you know, I'm a Hammond organ guy. I mean, when it comes down to it, you know, I grew up on Long Island. I, I I lived about 15 minutes away from the place called the Action House, which which is where Vanilla Foot started. It's where the Rascals started. It's where Soul Mandela started. Everybody was, especially with the Hammond organ, the the Illusion. Uh, I don't know if you know those bands. Well, you know the Rascals and the Vanilla Foot. Sure. But they they were and the Vagrants, of course. They were living there. I could go down there any night and hear the Vagrants or pretty much the Rascals. And Vanilla Fudge was there all the time. Leslie West was in the Vagrants? He was the Vagrants. Yeah, they actually did. Re- I think the first hit on Atlantic was Respect, you know, the same label as Rascals. So it was Hammond Organ Mania and Bluesy Mania. So that's where Flesh and Blade. I just wanted to play the Hammond and, you know, really kind of go back to roots and do some bluesy, uh, funky stuff. So, of course, Al was into it, Al Petrelli and Danny Vaughn. We had two other singers, but it never quite happened. Uh, the record was done, and then at kind of at the last minute, they asked Danny to do it. And Danny just came in and sang the shit out of it. So yeah, that's a story. So it was your of, it was your John Lord uh, your John Lord moment? I don't know, John Lord is Sly Stone, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, it's funny. John Lord, after all these years, has kind of has a proprietary claim on a grindy Hammond organ, but there are plenty of other people doing it. You know, during that time, he was maybe, you know, stood the test of time and lasted a long time. But everybody was playing Hammond in those days. Yes. I, I, yeah, well, I'm old enough nice, to remember that. Yeah, I, yeah absolutely. You remember, you remember the nice, you remember one of my favorite bands was um, was uh, Crazy Arthur Brown. That was, you know, Fire was like, that really started it all. in a, Or Hush by Deep Purple. You know, that was really where that was all, all coming from. Ken Hensley and uh, early Uriah Heep. I, I wasn't so into Uriah Heep, but yeah, you know, all those bands, Nazareth, Nazareth and all, all that stuff. But Long Island was um, was the major place where that stuff was happening. Oceanside, yeah. Action House was in Oceanside. My God, my memory, my brain is working. <laughs> Jesus. I came into the Long Island scene growing up in Brooklyn. I came into the Long Island scene more like in the late 70s in the Rum Bottoms, yeah. uh, Hammerhead uh, yeah, era. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's where I, that I saw was, Zebra. Yeah. Actually, I was telling Jackson yeah. when we interviewed them, I saw 
Zebra long be probably four or five years before they were signed when they were doing yeah. just strictly Led Zeppelin shows and and you couldn't get in the club yeah. to see them. That's how a couple of years before that was the Action House. Yeah, it was a trans. You know, Billy Joel used to play the Action House and and all over. But I think it was in a band called Attila. Talking about grindy Hamagorgan. Oh my God. Right. Have you heard of it? I, yes. I heard it. I, yes. I can't say I'm a fan of it, but right. I have yeah, definitely John, heard it. John Small, who's you know a major manager now, was a drummer, and it was just a duo. And of course, Lee Michaels and yeah, you know, all, all that stuff. So it, it was a great time to come up. But yeah, uh, Flesh and Blood was were funky. And by the way, speaking of which, you know, three years ago or two years ago, I got a call from uh, a label in France called Bad Reputation, um, who wanted to reissue flesh and blood so that is out now again in europe on, on a label called bad reputation oh, okay. and it actually, we did actually remaster it and we, danny and i wrote a new song called uh keep on rolling for the record so we didn't actually did a new song for it talk about bonus tracks <laughs> um oh, actually yeah, we did too oh that's right and danny did an, an acoustic version of a bluesy song called riverside on the record which kills i mean he just did a harmonica acoustic guitar version very howlin wolf or muddy waters you know really? early wow. jo johnson what's his name you know robert johnson yeah robert johnson very you know acoustic again danny just put that together like you know in like two days so yeah it, it's a cool record and it's available well um yeah, mark we, we talked about a bunch of stuff we covered a lot of things tonight um what are you currently up to i mean i know you mentioned that american tears is kind of active again you've been doing some albums the last few years you know of course touch has the tomorrow never comes came out last year uh what's currently going on with you well um actually next month uh there's a band called keys that i put together with jakey who's uh again a great singer Michael Sierra, i don't know if you've ever heard of amory but um phenomenal uh, he won best vocalist of the year in 2020 in, in burn magazines a lot of major publications okay. so he and i he actually um, re recorded the vocals for his Sierra record at my place in new york i got a call from a swedish friend and said I got a band, you know, who's in New York to record, and they hate the video. Can they come over to your place and record? I said, sure, they're over in 45 minutes, five guys. And I was out the door flying to Sweden to go back to work. So they stayed at my house for a month and recorded. Anyway, I became great friends with Jake, and I we wrote a song for the Sierra record. And then um, I was wanting to do this, this idea I had with three keyboard players, a drummer and a singer because you can now really do anything with keyboard players so it's three huge stacks of hammonds and every keyboard you could possibly imagine three players so that was the thinking behind keys and charlie got involved and i um got some other people involved almost worked with don airy but didn't quite work out i'm gonna try to work with rick wakeman try to work with adam wakeman didn't quite work out they were busy but by the end of the day we finished the record and uh it's really I don't even know how to describe it. It's very signature, goth times, very aggressive sometimes, very melodic sometimes, but it's all keyboards. And that'll um, be out on Deco? That will be out on Cargo Record. And and in the States, it's um, AFM, is it called? What's the name of it? That huge distributor in the States. Um, but it, yeah, basically, it's Cargo. And that's coming out. It's all, actually, I should be getting test pressings, I should say CDs, within a couple of days great artwork by stan decker and we had a lot of fun doing it and working with working with jake who's got this amazing voice and four four octave range and could sing anything really great is really there uh, is there anywhere uh, do you have a website that people can keep up to date on things i don't have a really i, I used to have a mark mangle website but i just haven't had time to keep it up no i guess I guess me on Facebook. Everything is through my Facebook page. Okay. All the, all these bands are basically pages or, or their own pages, like Touch and now Keys. We're just starting getting Keys going. But yeah, I I, I hope people check it out because it's been getting a great response by you know the magazines. We have um, some reviews coming out. And again, you know, it's different and it's keyboards, so it's not like generic where you're chasing this '80s generic AOR thing you're just trying to come up with new things and being creative and not formulaic so it's always a little you know i don't want to say scary because you know you just do the best you can but it is um an unknown what the response is going to be so 
you just got to make it so you like it again so that you know again if you get those arms in your hair in your arms to go up you have to hope that people are going to dig it and people are really responding is very refreshing because if you're hearing what sounds like guitar it's not a guitar it's a keyboard sounding kind of like guitar it could be a grindy yes Hammond organ sound like guitar or else it could be a guitar emulator there's a lot of plugins now that a keyboard can really play some scathing guitar shit now it really sounds like guitar really been a blessing for me because i love guitar and um i love kind of i have guitarish ideas and um playing on a keyboard is a lot of fun you know you get the hammer-ons and you get you can really just do anything guitar can do it's um it's pretty cool well you know what mark we tom and i really appreciate this conversation tonight i had a good time going down you know memory lane talking about all the different projects you've done over the uh, years I, I do have one thing i do have one thing to add before you end sure go ahead my friend Fiona Flanagan introduced ah, me to a Jersey girl. Jersey girl. She introduced me to James Christian a couple months ago. So she, she's, you know, very, James married to Robin Beck and they're, mm-hmm. they're friends. So yeah. Hey James, how you doing? You got any songs? You know, I sent him a song. Yeah, that's cool. And, um, I guess I've written nine, 10 songs now with house of Lords and played all the keyboards on the new house of Lords record. Oh really? So wow. I guess I'm in house of Lords now. <laughs> there you go. Newest member. Yeah. Breaking so, news on the James, Jersey Guys podcast. <laughs> James is just such a pleasure to work with. And it's such a pleasure to write that kind of stuff. It's, you know, you have to put on another hat. Again, it's it's epic. And um, he wanted, he's on Frontiers. And they wanted it to be a bit more like the first House of Lords record. So it's really going back to the 80s, late 70s, where there's freedom and you can do whatever the hell you want. So there's a lot of that. I met Jimmy Bell, who's an amazing guitar player, who wrote a couple of songs with some Swedes, a song I wrote with Jake Ease on the record, uh, who, you know, I just mentioned, who's in Keys and Syrah. So really meeting a lot of very nice people and um, turning out into a, we're actually mixing it now, it's turning out into a really great record. Any ideas when that's going to uh, hit? Well, I know Frontiers wants the Masters within like two weeks, and we're going crazy trying to finish it. So hmm. we're trying not, to, you know, we're not trying not to, Rush you know, sacrifice and sacrifice anything. So we're, we're, you know, hopefully within a couple of months it'll be out. Nice. Well, that's yeah. something to look forward to for sure. Um, There's a lot of stuff happening. You know, we've got keys happening. We have that happening. Touchy's coming out with two new videos. We have a video coming out next week, um, which is very lyrically current with the whole Ukraine thing called "Run for Your Life." written two years ago sadly it's fucking relevant as hell and coming out with another uh video with touch in about two months called a little bit of rock and roll which is probably our stupidest song in the record <laughs> which we is just straight ahead rock and roll so that's that's happening so we're still keep re- keep releasing these singles with touch so it's a lot yeah. of fun good stuff good stuff mark well we appreciate yeah, it again uh, appreciate the conversation tonight and uh Tom, anything to uh, to close out? Thanks very much, Mark. It was uh, very enlightening, and uh, I enjoyed every minute of it. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Stay in touch, please. Yes, definitely. Appreciate it. Everybody, Mark Mangold, thank you for joining us tonight. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye, Mark. Bye.